0: Frank Conley, and welcome to another episode of Dig Deeper, Mind Edge Learning's occasional podcast on critical thinking in the digital age. Our guest today is Ethan Zuckerman. Uh, Ethan is director of the Center for Civic Media at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and an associate professor of the practice at the MIT Media Lab. His research focuses on the use of media as a tool for social change, the role of technology in international development, and the use of new media technologies by activists. He is the author of Rewire, Digital Cosmopolitans in the Age of Connection. Uh, And in a previous life, uh, Ethan is well known as having played a large role in the uh, invention of the pop-up ad, but, but we love you anyway, Ethan. And uh, thank you very much for joining us, and welcome.
1: Well, it's great to be with you, and I'll take one more chance to uh, apologize to everyone out there for uh, the many harms I've done in my lifetime. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not, not at all, hardly. When we first spoke, Ethan, a couple weeks ago, uh, I used the, uh, the term fake news. Uh, and you kind of called me on it, and you talked about why that's a term that no longer has a, a great deal of meaning. If you could just sort of run through that again, why you think that the term fake news is, is misused and inappropriate.
1: So I don't like using the term fake news for really two reasons. The first is that the meaning of the term has really changed from what it was introduced. When it was first introduced, it was about a set of news articles that had been created explicitly for profit, sometimes by Macedonian teens, sometimes by entrepreneurs in the US, designed to be highly viral on Facebook and to make money off of Facebook ads. Now we have used the tool, uh, used the term to mean anything from news we don't like or news that is probably best understood as propaganda. There's some element of falsehood to it, but there's also some element of truth. The real problem with it is that it's being used specifically, you know, to bludgeon a particular political issue. But the real reason I don't like it is that when we say fake news. We are reinforcing this idea that we can't trust anything today. And my general sense is that mistrust is actually the most dangerous and toxic aspect of the current political moment. Um, I think mistrust in government is what elected Donald Trump. I think mistrust in institutions of all sorts is leading people to withdraw from civics and providing a lot of support for very simplistic nationalistic views of the world. And I'd really rather not support that narrative, which I think is so dangerous and destructive.
0: What advice do you have for folks who are trying to kind of make sense of this new era in which facts have become sort of unmoored from their, the, the larger context and, 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 and everything seems to be sort of almost relativistic uh, in a lot of people's minds? Uh, how does the average person try and make sense of that environment?
1: Well, I think the first thing that you do is you start looking for responsible news sources that have been around for a while. One of the interesting things that Yohai Benkler and I found along with our teams when we studied news during the 2016 election is that there is a cluster of news sites built around Breitbart. These are folks who take content from Breitbart. They deliver content to Breitbart. And they uh, tend to be very new. Most of them were founded during the Obama administration. And this is where a lot of the unverified and unverifiable information is coming from. So you're going to get a better chance of finding real facts if you're going with newspapers that have been around for a while or broadcast television um, or even websites that, you know, sort of have a longer track record and aren't so explicitly partisan. But I think the real issue is that people have to read very differently than they used to. Most of us learn to read the news with the assumption that what we were getting had been fact-checked, was verifiable. Now what we're getting is a mix of fact, speculation, opinion, and propaganda. And part of what happens is that most of what we tell people to do, we tell people to triangulate, look for a piece of information from at least three different sources. And what's problematic about that is that depending on what you're searching for, you might find three sources all repeating an untruth. If you remember this whole nonsense around Pizzagate, this speculation that somehow Hillary Clinton was running a child pornography ring out of a pizza parlor, the left wasn't talking about that issue, nor was the fact-based media. The only people who were talking about it were the far right, where the conspiracy had started. And so if you bumped into that on the far right and googled for it, you might have found it on Reddit, you might have found it on Infowars, you might have found it on Breitbart. If those are all sources that you trust, You might feel like you triangulated and fact-checked, but what you'd really done is you'd reconfirmed uh, what turned out to be an entirely false rumor. So those practices of triangulation don't work for us super well. We're actually going to have to drive people back to fact-based media.
0: I mean, that's really, really interesting. Now, you and your team did a lot of research in terms of assessing the, I may be wrong here, the partisan bias or orientation of certain news media sources. Am I describing that correctly? or?
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that's certainly part of what we did. What we tried to do was come up with a map of who was most influential in online spaces in the 2016 elections. And we were very interested in who um, had a great deal of influence on both the left and the right. One of the first things we had to figure out was um, what media sources to the left pay attention to, what media sources do the right pay attention to. We did that by looking at Twitter co-presence. If you tweeted Donald Trump or any other Republican candidate and you treated a news site, we put sort of a check mark in the Republican side um, of that analysis. If you tweeted Hillary Clinton, if you treated Bernie Sanders, retweeted Bernie Sanders, we put a check on uh, the liberal side of the column, the Democratic side of the column. What we found out is that Um, the center-right in the U.S. had disappeared. Um, Traditionally right-wing sources, even hard-right sources, like the National Review, the Wall Street Journal, those end up registering as centrist sources on our map. They're actually getting attention from both the left and the right. Um, The stuff that gets attention purely from the right, what we would think of as as sort of the hardcore right at this point, that is what people usually respond to as the alt-right. It's Breitbart, it's uh, Daily Caller, it's InfoWars. It's a lot of these sites that many of us in the fact-based community dismiss. But near as we could tell, Breitbart was the sixth most influential site during the course of our analysis. And it was by far the most influential site towards the right. So the media landscape has really shifted. A lot of those traditional mouthpieces of the right at least in online spaces, are almost invisible. Fox News shows up as an influence, but not a big one, and the Wall Street Journal is almost completely missing.
0: Now, where would the, the group commonly described as the mainstream media, sometimes objectively and sometimes dismissively, but where would the
1: mainstream media fit on, uh, on, on the spectrum that you describe? Sure. The New York Times, The Washington Post, um, CNN, and Politico end up um, sort of in the center to center left. So they are linked to a little bit more by people on the left than on the right. They're still fairly close to the center. And so this whole accusation of, of left-wing mainstream media bias, it makes sense if your center is Breitbart and anyone to the left of Breitbart you know, looks leftist to you. There's a big gap between uh, what we would call mainstream media and something like Breitbart if you're sitting in the center or uh on the left uh the new york times the washington post political cnn they they really all kind of show up in the same general area um what's interesting is is online there are sources that we don't think of as being hugely influential including the hill uh, which has generally been viewed as sort of a right-leaning washington insider site um, that was enormously popular during the 2016 election, and that's split right down the middle. It's equally linked by uh, the left and the right.
0: What uh, uh, outlet showed up as most influential?
1: Um, the New York Times by most metrics, um, but The Hill and Politico also uh, show up as, uh, as incredibly potent. Um, but what, what we really saw was most interesting was... Um, how many of what we think of as very large established media outlets uh that were not hugely influential uh at least in online spaces um we were sort of shocked in the work that we ended up doing about this that um for the most part uh fox news was not enormously influential online and then uh beyond that um that it was, it was actually significantly further to left at certain points in the campaign. There was a good chunk of the campaign where Fox News was being beaten up by Breitbart um, over uh, the question of whether they were going to sort of endorse Donald Trump or not. And you may remember that Fox News was sort of playing the whole Republican field and Breitbart went right at him. Uh, and basically said, you guys aren't real Republicans. You're not. You're not really uh, in this debate. I'm sorry. I just pulled up my data. It's, CNN is actually the most influential online, followed by the New York Times. So it makes sense in some ways that um, uh, the president would would uh, set his guns on on CNN and, and the New York Times as his uh, two primary targets, given their level of influence. Sure, the
0: the failing New York Times, right?
1: <laughs> the failing New York Times, and the fake news CNN, and then uh, the uh, the Amazon Washington Post comes in third. <laughs> That's right. Um, how about the the broadcast networks ABC, NBC,
0: CBS? I mean, there was a time, certainly, when you know, in the days of Walter Cronkite, where CBS news was sort of the the gold standard for the way a lot of people got their uh, the way. A lot of people who didn't get their news through newspapers uh, would 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 get their news. Uh, what, what's their level of influence these days?
1: Um, I would say that NBC News is almost as influential as uh, Mashable, uh, <laughs> Politics USA, uh, The Washington Examiner. It's not quite yeah. as influential as The Daily Caller. Wow. Um, so, I mean, maybe that just gives you a, sh- a sense for how things have really shifted. Um, A lot of things that we thought of as authoritative news sources, they're still enormously important. So, you know, let's take NPR, which is incredibly important as far as news and information on the left. In terms of online influence, uh, it shows up in you know a pack that includes things like the Nation, uh, the Onion, Politifact, Rolling Stone. Uh, but obviously, that that understates its influence, right? It has enormous influence for listeners, but it doesn't necessarily um, show up in terms of Facebook Facebook posts or tweets. Um, You know, what we're basically documenting in this media ecosystem is that the media that flies around on these social networks tends to be media that was born out of social network spaces. It's really optimized for social network spaces. It may back end onto conventional reporting. Um, but not always, and and that's where Breitbart is so incredibly powerful. But when we look at that top pack, CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, yes, but Politico, HuffPo, The Hill, and Breitbart uh, sort of round out that crowd of the highly influential media, and they were really you know built and born for that digital age. Yeah,
0: that's interesting. You've written in the past about um, sort of the shift in in the media's role from. Uh, in the past, where it, it really sort of performed a, like a curatorial function back before people had news feeds, but it was it was essentially the quote unquote mainstream media was was curating the the news that most Americans got, and and the the fact that the mainstream media is no longer really performing that role is, I guess, uh, you would say, is is a, res, a result of the uh, the shift towards uh, you know online news sources and as opposed to conventional quote unquote
1: media. Basically, what happened in media is that we went from a moment where the ability to disseminate your words was the limiting factor to a moment where attention is the limiting factor. So when we go back in time to those moments where, you know, only the powerful have printing presses, only a limited number of people have access to broadcast media, um, you have the Fairness Doctrine because you recognize that media is really scarce. Access to it is an important political right. At that point, attention isn't your main constraint. It's actually getting access to the mic, getting access to the printing press. What happens first with the rise of cable television, then it really gets played out with the internet, is that anyone can have a voice. And now you can start a blog, and if you're good enough and savvy enough and influential enough, perhaps it becomes um, something that can actually have a voice within media dialogues. The trick is now the constraint is getting attention. And um, what happens is some of these organizations that used to have a lot of attention, like the New York Times, like CNN, they are still brokering the attention they used to have, and they still have the resources to do really great content creation. There's other people who are doing great content creation, they aren't always finding an audience. Uh, and then there's people who probably aren't doing great content creation anymore, I would say you know, regional broadcast news in many cases, but um, they have attention to spare. And, and so what happens is when attention is the scarce commodity, how media gets sorted is the most important factor. And this is what makes something like Facebook so powerful. Facebook has an enormous amount of influence over what you see versus what you don't see. That's why people pay such attention to the Facebook algorithm. We used to care what was on the front page of the New York Times. Then we cared what came up first on a Google search results. Now we care about how you're going to show up or not show up on the Facebook newsfeed.
0: So, sort of as an aside, what do you think of, of Facebook efforts to and and and, and other uh, social network sites to combat or regulate, to use the, the the bad term fake news again, but they to basically regulate their, their their news flow and
1: decide who's in and who's out? It is it is understandable, and it is dangerous. Um, so it's understandable because what is coming off of something like infowars for instance is so often wrong and dangerous um and the idea that it could mobilize someone to go out and take a a rifle into a pizzeria and and seek to investigate a fake scandal um that's really troublesome that's really worrisome the problem is when you start declaring whole sites fake news sites um, you're going to catch some of the sites that are, are, are simply um, taking advantage of, of the economics of this and creating news out of whole cloth. But you're also going to catch a lot of highly opinionated sites. And I actually think that's very dangerous to speech. Um, I think it's fine for Facebook to flag These sites and say a lot of people have reported this as um, unreliable information. I think it's fine um, to go after sites that are clearly producing nothing but um, stories that that are that are completely artificial. But I think once you start getting into controlling Breitbart, Infowars, Daily Caller, that this sort of highly politicized. Conspiracy-laden speech. I think you're you're steering into very dangerous waters, and I also think that if this stuff goes off of Facebook, it's going to find other ways to spread. Um, and I think Facebook is going to lose an enormous amount of its credibility as sort of an an arbiter, a, a, a fair arbiter of speech. So I wish it were as simple as just identifying the sites that are problematic and, and taking them off of Facebook. I don't think that's a very good idea.
0: No, I, I, I agree. I think that, you know, it's, it's easy when you're talking about stuff that's obvious clickbait. But uh, I, I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with Dan Kennedy, who's a good, uh, good friend of mine, but Dan draws the distinction between fake news and false news. Uh, the stuff that is verifiably false and, and, and absurd, that's, that's sort of the easy case. Uh, and the the difficulty is when you get into into what is essentially political speech whether it sounds plausible or not uh, it's still political speech and, and ought to be protected so there's a real danger of falling down the slippery slope as soon as you you start to try and regulate that uh, in in a way that's uh, anything beyond uh, just uh, excluding the most obvious and egregious cases but one of the things that we've talked about uh, in past podcasts here has been the steps that, that people can take to improve their critical thinking skills, particularly as it applies to the online world. And, and we've sort of taken a position in the past is that, you know, it's not rocket science. It's, you know, ask questions, uh, get multiple sources, uh, question sources. But some of what you're saying suggests that, that that's maybe not enough. What is a, a student or, or a citizen? What do they need to do to be real critical thinkers in, in an age of not just fake news, but very politicized and ideologically driven uh, online content?
1: So what's so hard about this is the answer that I'm going to give makes me deeply unhappy. Um, so the answer that I want to give you is, you know, read multiple sources, look for original sources, draw your own conclusions, think critically, so on and so forth. And the answer is, generally speaking, people do really badly when they do that. Um, we have so few indicators of information quality out there. So much of the information that people want to put forward on a given issue has a covert political agenda associated with it, that when people go out and do that work, they, they often end up in really um, complicated places. Um This American Life did a really lovely story a couple of weeks ago where they talked about this ferocious immigration debate in Homer, Alaska, which is frankly not a place that most immigrants are trying to get into. Uh, But the town got sort of ripped apart um, by whether or not Homer should declare itself immigrant friendly. And the NPR reporter, uh, sorry, the This American Life reporter spent a great deal of time with a really thoughtful, um, careful guy who was trying to come to his own conclusions about whether Islamic migrants would be dangerous in his town. And he ended up in this morass of European nationalist anti-immigrant propaganda and was trying to sort his way through it. And ultimately, what the, the this American Life reporter did was had him sit down with a BBC correspondent to sort of talk about what was real and what was not. And, um, you know, with that expert sort of looking over his shoulder, was able to sort of through it and sort of find out what was agenda and what wasn't. Mm-hmm. But what was crazy about this is that this is basically the argument that now we probably do need experts. We probably do need people who are really deeply knowledgeable about these things, who can walk us through what's real and what's not. And those people tend to work for major media organizations. They work for the BBC, they work for the New York Times, they work for the Guardian. And and so, I mean, tragically, my advice to people now is not to give into their skepticism. It's to trust, it's to assume that a lot of those mainstream media organizations um, have it right the vast majority of the time. When they don't have it right, they apologize really quickly uh, and correct it. And that the process of sort of going out an investigation is often the process of giving into your own preconceptions. We are all incredibly good selective thinkers. We can look at a set of evidence out there and we follow the stuff that supports the argument that we want to make. And that's extremely unhealthy and extremely dangerous. Um, and it makes it very, very hard for us to actually triangulate through a fact pattern.
0: So, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it almost sounds like in asking people to trust the major media sources that we're sort of getting back to them performing something of a
1: curatorial function. So one of the things we talk about a lot in, um, in the media and activism world is agenda setting. Uh, And agenda setting says, um, you know, the media's job isn't to tell you what to think, it's to tell you what to think about. And a lot of my critiques over media over the years have been the fact that we tell people mostly to think about America, we tell people mostly to think about government and about big business. You know, we don't pay a lot of attention to citizen movements, we don't pay a lot of attention to the rest of the world. The upside of agenda setting is that it often takes um, topics that aren't worth our attention and take them off the table. Um, So mainstream media didn't spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out uh, whether or not uh, this pizzeria was in fact um, a hotbed of child pornography, um, because it just didn't meet that level. It didn't rise to the level of demanding that attention. One of the things that's very interesting is that um, Donald Trump actually sort of mastered the art Of putting things on the agenda that probably shouldn't have been on the agenda if you remember how much of the obama presidency we spent discussing whether barack obama was a secret kenyan muslim that is a great example of an outsider sort of being loud enough that he was able to reset the agenda no serious media outlet wanted to talk about that and when Donald Trump claimed that you know, he was the one who finally got to the bottom of the controversy, it, it was such this wonderful irony. It never would have been an issue had Trump not been so relentless in perpetuating the falsehood. So yes, a big bit of what we need right now is some healthy agenda setting. At the same time, we do have to remember that agenda setting is political it's powerful and that it can be used to keep stuff off the table as well as putting stuff on the table.
0: Uh, Yeah. I mean, just thinking uh, perhaps at a a cruder level, but there was a time when the mainstream media, one of the things that was not on their agenda would be the personal lives of of candidates, uh, let's say. And and there was sort of a protective cocoon around uh, figures perhaps as, uh, you know. President Kennedy and and, and others in a, in a different era. And for good or ill, that has completely changed now to the to the extent where perhaps to an unhealthy degree, candidates and public figures' the private lives are are now deemed fair game. But wouldn't you say that's a, been a fairly seismic shift in the agenda-setting power of, of the media?
1: It's an enormous shift. And, and I would back up even a little further. I mean, first of all, Kennedy is a great example just because I don't think Kennedy would be remembered as the saint that he's currently remembered as had we had sort of bill clinton level style coverage of of his um uh predilections um and and so the fact that that we're able to, to sort of idolize him probably has a lot to do with the media tenor of the time uh but the first shift that really happens is a shift that happens during vietnam and during watergate which is this realization that the government may well be lying to us and that um, it is fair and noble to be questioning and to be digging and that the media's job is not just to be stenographers, it's to, it's to look critically at this. Um, I think in the spirit of looking critically at this, we then um, spent way, way, way too much time worrying about Bill, Bill Clinton's sex life Um, and really getting beyond this question of whether someone had committed political crimes and really asking our leaders to be of impeccable moral character. I think what's interesting now is that we're so flooded with so much information and we're so attuned to the notion that this information is all inherently political, that whether it's a substantive attack, like, hey the russians may have manipulated our elections or whether it is um you know very much an ad hominem attack hey maybe donald trump uh did inappropriate things with girls in a moscow hotel room we don't really distinguish between the two those are both left-wing attacks and therefore they have to be uh batted down by the right um, and this leads us to the, this weird culture where we're so critical that we're totally non critical. Um, we don't draw the distinction between um, is Donald Trump a serial liar and did Donald Trump commit treason? Uh, and, and those are different things. Those are really different things that demand different levels of scrutiny and attention.
0: I just want to try and wrap up here by asking a question that I've asked some of our previous guests, which is looking to the future. Are, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist about how we are going to, going to be able to consume and, and assess media and, and the impacts that that will have on our society?
1: I fear that I might be becoming a Trotskyite. I think I may <laughs> have reached the point where what I'm actually looking for is more people to decide that the systems that we have right now are just not working. And rather than um, tinkering around the edges, that we may see large-scale insurrectionism on one level or another. One of the things that makes me really optimistic and happy about the media is that it is perpetually reinventing itself. Um, I had the great joy of having sort of a front row seat for... watching the role of online media in the Arab Spring and watching people say media and how we use it is going to be a critical element in political revolution. Um, I think we may be heading towards some deeply revolutionary moments in American and European politics. And I hope that media is going to have a real hand in that. Um, I will say that one of the amazing things about this moment in time is that we are seeing incredible work being done, not just by the New York Times and the Washington Post, but by groups like ProPublica that are, you know, uh, or The Intercept that are sort of building this up with small newsrooms. I still think we're seeing very important work being done by individual bloggers, podcasters, reporters. So I think it's a hugely exciting time uh, but it would take a lot of work to uh, turn me into an optimist at this particular moment in time.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, let's let's hope we can all find some ways to turn ourselves into optimists at some point. Uh, let's hope that the, the system allows us to become uh, optimistic at some point in the
1: future. Inshallah.
0: With that, I just want to uh, say uh, thank you again to Ethan Zuckerman and bid a farewell to, uh, to our listeners. Thank you very much for being with us, Ethan.
1: Great to be with you. Take care.